up, everyone? Welcome to another episode of Desolation Radio. It's me, your boy Dan Evans, and it's me, your great grandfather Nathan Cush. You're getting older each uh, uh, each week. I'm feeling it. I say, <laughs> like not Benjamin Button, but like I was gonna say Benjamin Button reverse. That's normal aging. Just normal aging. I've got that Jack disease, Robin Williams had. What's that? Well, oh, in the film, Jack. Yeah, and he's just you know he's he's like basically. I don't think could, on that? very possibly. Do you think that's the twist at the end? Because he didn't I'm have not, like a kind I'm of not, I'm not, disease. I've not, I've not seen it. He's just a craft. He's just a crafty nonce. <laughs> All right. Okay. Um, we're not really going to do much of Wales this week because uh, we were listening to the first draft of this and we recorded it in June. So the Wales this week is sort of out of date, and that tends to happen a lot because of perfectionists and also because it takes us a long time to produce episodes. When we talk about uh, an issue, the bad news has been replaced by more bad news, so it tends to be out of date. What I will say very briefly is that things that have happened of note. In the lull between the last one, are Plaid have like done pretty well to expose Welsh Labour governments. The fact that like Saudi pilots who are bombing Yemen into the Stone Age and facilitating the worst man-made famine in a hundred years are being trained in RAF Valley and Anglesey. Cowan said that he this had was no opinion because this was a devolved. Cowan issue. says, yeah. yeah, like, and I think Alan Davis said he has no opinion because it's not a devolved issue. Adam Price did well to raise it in the Senate that you know sort of the Welsh land has been used to facilitate war crimes. Public money, Welsh public money, has been given to uh, subsidised Raytheon, which is an American arms company. I think they make things in the valleys. Ken Skates then turned around and said, "Whoa, what? It's uh, I guess Plaid just don't support jobs then, which you know this is like where we are, unfortunately." What I will say, um, well done, Plaid, but Plaid supported the creation of private military training facility in Saint Athen back in the day, and Plaid have rejected calls for raising the age of recruitment from 16 to 18 so Plaid is certainly not blameless in that regard and I believe Adam Price actually signed the letter which sort of called for the creation of the uh, private military training academy in St. Athens that's, so, that's awesome so good stuff but you know a long way to go in terms of changing the common sense towards militarism in Wales a concept which you'll yeah, hear a lot are. about in just a sec so what we're thinking of doing is basically doing weekly videos or, or fortnightly videos which is a big step because it's pretty embarrassing. I don't. I never wanted to be a guy that spoke into a camera like on YouTube, but we thought it might be a way of staying more contemporary and more responsive to sort of news rather than sort of have a backlog of terrible events that we, that we have to sort of discuss every episode. And I get to make weird videos now. Yeah, I, not just for my home. You don't want. You don't want to see some of the things that Nate's made already. No. Uh, <laughs> okay, so today we're going to be doing part two of our Great Thinkers series. We're going to be talking today about the Italian communist leader and, in my opinion, the greatest thinker of all time, uh, Antonio Gramsci. Previously, we talked about Pierre Bourdieu, the French sociologist, so make sure you go back and check that episode out. My PhD was basically on Gramsci, and I was recently asked to do a talk on him for the lovely young people that applied EFANC, which was a really enjoyable experience. We're too so, old now for Plaid Fang. I think we are, man. I'm too old for 18 to 30 holidays. Yeah. And yeah, you can't join Plaid Fang, I'm afraid. Yeah. Um, I'm too old for Happy Meals. But it was a really... I'm too depressed. But it was a really, really good experience. And I thought, you know what? I mean, I've studied the guy for... And written about him for like the last, what, five, six, seven years. So may as well get a podcast. Yeah. May as well get Milk a podcast. Milk him as much as you can. Yeah, like. hell yeah. And you know, I've got a... I mean, I've got a tattoo of him. You have a Gramsci tattoo. I'm surprised you? we didn't talk about it. Did that um, age well? It looks like Die Moon. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it means I don't have to get the tattoo of Die that I was going to get. Yeah, I mean, it's two and one now, isn't it? Because yeah, Die will basically. naturally grow into like, like Gramsci. So Gramsci looks like Die Moon. Uh, big L on my foot now looks like Phil. <laughs> yeah, Phil who? Uh, it just looks like it says Phil, not Big L. Oh, right. Um, <laughs> Name your kid Phil. Uh, all right, so we're going to talk about Gramsci. And obviously, as a Welsh podcast, we'll be talking about his, you know, the application of Gramsci's theory to Wales. We may as well just briefly talk about that in the first. We previously done an episode on devolution. 
in which I talked about my research on devolution as a passive revolution, which is a Gramscian concept. And so it's worth... I guess, Should we do a quick recap? So yeah, I'll like, do a very quick recap. Mm-hmm. So basically, I mean, why do we need Gramsci? I think it's important to point out, because when people talk about Gramsci and Bourdieu, you do get some people, oh, you know, what's the use in theory, almost, but as we'll see... But it can't about, be applied anyway. But as we'll talk about, you know, Gramsci's life, Bourdieu's life, I mean, all these theoreticians, you know, like Lenin, like Gramsci, these are people who are actual revolutionaries, you know, like Gramsci, as we'll see, like, you know, died in a fascist prison cell. He's not some just guy, he's not some professor that's just, like, sitting in his ivory tower writing something. He's come up with ideas that become a theory based on his own practice in fascist Italy, you know what I mean? So you need theory because there's no theory that just emerges from thin air. Communist and Marxist theory emerges from praxis. It's, it's not removed in any way, is it? Those exactly. It's, they're they're writing these things based on their own lived experiences. Okay, so previously when we talked about devolution, the, the reason that devolution and subsequent events that have happened in Wales, you know, like the rise of the far right, you know, the failures of devolution... They're just not understood. People sort of scratching their heads like, what's gone wrong? You know, how has this happened? And the reason is, is that back in 1997, all the people who were meant to be analysing devolution, you know, like academics and journalists, like collectively lost their shit. And just rather than analysing the material conditions and what was actually going on and like the power relations inherent to devolution, just started saying, wow, this is amazing. Like this is a radical change to the British state, blah, blah. Like everything's going to be different. You know, Wales is now, you know, a nation and so on. And it was for just, all of us to get rich. And that was obviously a terrible ridiculously optimistic reading of devolution very optimistic for something that just kind of scraped past <laughs> yeah exactly exactly that I mean the, the fact that it only scraped over the line should have given people a sort of pause for reflection um but no and one of the reasons that devolution people don't understand devolution is because the understanding of the state in wales is like so awful and when we say the state i basically just mean like you know what's the shorthand you know the man the establishment the courts parliament the police the army that's what we mean when we say the state, you know, the establishment. In Wales, very briefly, there are two sort of competing definitions of the state, both of which are like completely, well, not completely useless, but quite unhelpful for understanding where we are. The first one is the internal colonial paradigm, which sort of emerged in the 70s after an American guy called Michael Hector wrote a book called Internal Colonialism. <laughs> Cannoli. Cannoli. Oh, man, we've got Italian stuff. Yeah, we've got like um, putting as inter- much Italian stuff inter- in this. Internal well. colonialism, uh, where he basically argued that, you know, Wales is a classic colony just like sort of Africa was the UK and France and so on and so forth, whereby England and the British state extracted a surplus from Wales, extracted raw materials and sort of kept essentially culturally oppressed Wales um, and sort of legitimized its colonialism by like running down the Welsh language and so on and so forth. Something we still see to this day. And that was something that was like embraced by Welsh nationalists in the 70s. It actually was in, you know, Socialism for the Welsh People. You know, Rob Griffiths and Gareth Miles said sort of Wales is an internal colony. It's quite a nice, simplistic understanding of um, Wales' relationship with England, standing in this unequal colonial relationship. And the corollary of that is that, you know, Britishness is seen as like a form of false consciousness. Given that Wales is in an exploitative, you know, unequal relationship, then if you feel British, then you've sort of been duped. There's that famous Gwynvor Evans quote when he says, Britishness is a synonym for Englishness, which extends over the Scots and the Welsh and the Irish, essentially. So the response to... The internal colonial model basically came from like Dye Smith and all his Labour colleagues who were just like, duh, it's the American. And like they, they wouldn't read theory. They didn't like the fact that this guy was sort of calling into question the British state, which is like, you know, the thing they were most obsessed with. Dye Smith uh, famously bragged that he's uh, written more books than he's read. <laughs> Did he actually? 
All right, well, <laughs> wouldn't be surprised because he certainly didn't read internal colonialism. And the response to internal colonialism sort of exemplifies the Labour understanding of the state, not just in Wales, but the Labour Party more generally, which is basically they view that the state is completely neutral and essentially the, the state is benevolent, especially when it comes to Wales. So they point to the welfare state and, and, say, and say, you know, look, look the, like the NHS, you know, nationalised industries. How can you say that Wales is exploited when we've all done well at the welfare state? It's quite a, a binary view of... Um... Yeah, and the, and the problem is the internal colonial model poses power very crudely. It's good in the first place that it draws attention to the unequal relationship to Wales and England, but it's bad in that it's just very simplistic, it's very black and white. And the Labour understanding of the state is bad because it just ignores power completely. It's just like naive and just says, oh, well, you know, the, the state is good. And as we'll see, Gramsci's theories, you know, hegemony, passive revolution, will basically help us understand and move past these sort of crude understandings of the state, which are, are preventing us understand the evolution and which in turn are prevented us understanding, you know, the current sort of shit storm that we find ourselves in basically i should also mention a bit shout out i first came across gramsci in aberystwyth when i was doing international relations when i was taught by a youthful uh richard Wynne jones he still is youthful mind he's always been youthful and handsome yeah. and he used to obviously he calls gramsci like Gram- gramsci so <laughs> <laughs> so he was te- he was te- teaching like i think it was critical security studies so i sort of came to gramsci backwards you know obviously like any other teenager in school you spend all your days mm. reading Marx and you know Engels and Lenin, but not getting to Gramsci. No, no. So, so um, well, well, the people, folly of youth. Well, you were party and I was studying the blade. Um, <laughs> so it's like, so you get to, got to uni. You know, Richard Wynne Jones was you know charismatic lecture talking about like Gramsci, and then read this international relations scholar called Robert Cox, who was sort of the, the leading light of this like you know, critical security studies, and he and he used Gramsci's theory of hegemony to explain like America's role in the world. So that's why I sort of came to Gramsci originally, because Robert Cox has this awesome quote where he said, anything you read and anything you analyse, the first thing you ask is, you know, who's this for? And like, who benefits from this analysis? So it should sort of interrogate everything. So I was like, oh, this Gramsci guy seems interesting. So I spent, Who you is know, this Gramsci I keep hearing about? Gramsci. Gramsci. So, I, so I spent the next, uh, well, 10 years, like trying to get my head around the prison notebooks and stuff really. So... We should we talk about? We'll do a little bio. Yeah, still a bio. Let's, um, let's learn about the man. Gramsci is important, by the way. I should say that it's because he's probably the most misunderstood and misappropriated Marxist theorist, like of all time. I mean, like Paul Mason goes on about Gramsci all the time, and like every time he opens his mouth, well, obviously in general, every time he opens his mouth, it's like something terrible is going to come. He's up, really fallen from grace, isn't he, Paul Mason? Just the reason I first. I mean, I dislike Paul Mason before it was before cool. It was cool. Because Before of Paul, he went because Paul Mason used to I was just like he obviously like read I don't know one page of Gramsci or like maybe read a quote on the internet skim the Wikipedia uh, but he gets Gramsci like terribly wrong like Tony Blair I think like during the New Labour years used to like mention Gramsci you see people people use the word hegemony over and over they drop it into sentences to make them sound like smart check uh, it down on Scrabble um, them, like the word count and people use like Gramsci quotes like all the time you know like what's that the one they always use is like the old is dying and the new cannot be born. And there's an awesome quote, uh, I forget who it's by, but you know, it's, it's got the stage where like Gramsci is like the communist militant who you take home to meet your mum and meet your parents because he's been completely sanitized. And like the fact he's like a, a communist revolutionary who hated, by the way, social democratic reformists has kind of been lost. So he's mainly been used essentially by social democrats to justify any of the terrible 
terrible things they do, they'll just like take a quote from Gramsci to justify what they're doing and give it sort of this radical veneer. And also like the other group of people that ruined it are the Eurocommunists. So the Eurocommunists in the 80s and 90s kind of used Gramsci to justify their terrible like reformist ways. So Chantal Mouffet in particular, like just completely misinterpreted Gramsci. I've also seen, um, ironically, Gramsci used by the right to explain the spread of communism and oh. the attack on, uh, you know, cultural Marxism. conservative. Yeah, is literally uh, cultural Marxism. Well, this is this is the problem, right? And we're st- this is what Chantal Mouffe did really in the 80s, I'd say, or maybe it was the 90s, or maybe it was the 70s. They basically read Gramsci and only talk about Gramsci as the theorist of, like, the superstructures. And so Marx always said, you know, you've got the base and the superstructure. So the base being the it's economy. It's about the base. <laughs> the base being the economy. And the superstructures being things like, you know, the media, politics, things like that. And they've only focused on Gramsci's, like, hegemony the, as a concept has become associated with just, like, ideas, which is absolute bullshit, really, because, you know, Gramsci was, like, a materialist, he was a proper Marxist, and, and he does focus on, like, ideas and culture, and, but he also is, you know, a Leninist. And basically what Gramsci does, he completes Marxism, essentially, for me. He's the, the missing link. Like, so Stuart Hall and like Raymond Williams, you know, read Gramsci in like the seventies and used him and applied him to like cultural studies, and that's why Gramsci's like almost like his hardcore Marxism and his relationship to the economy and things in particular got a bit lost. People just used to talk about him in relation to culture, and so we'll talk now about his life, his background. Yeah, yeah, um, growing up, coming up. Yeah. All right. So Gramsci was born <laughs> in eighteen ninety one in Sardinia. So his dad was like a low-level official. Uh, his mum was like a small landowner. His dad then... Did she, she own a, a small bit of land or was she just quite a small she lady? She was a small landowner. Yeah. She was physically small. Um, his dad <laughs> the then, land seemed bigger. His dad gets arrested for corruption and leaves the family destitute. His dad goes and does a bid. Gramsci then has to like abandon his studies in school and then works to support his family. He develops a malformed spine, which gives him like a hunchback, leaves him very short. For his whole adult life, he's under five foot. You can relate. Can I you? know. All the great thinkers are, are short, aren't they? Yep. Well, that's the only one I can think of. Just me and Gramsci. Two. Um, Who else? That's it. Um, Rumpelstilt, no. <laughs> Rumpelstiltskin? Yeah. Who's that? Is he a magic? A Pinocchio? Pinocchio, he's a good thinker, isn't he? An Italian? Yeah, he was. I feel like we should maybe play the Super Mario Brothers music, like, at different interludes in this. Yeah, I reckon. We but, do like, that? different points of view. Like, yeah, so, like... If we're talking about something sad or like a bit dark, yeah. No, when he's in prison, we'll be there like, do 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 do. All right. So his dad comes out of jail, and Gramsci then goes to school in Cagliari, which is the capital of Sardinia. If you didn't know that. So, um, is it perhaps good to point out at this moment? This is before Italy was um unified, wasn't it? No, no, no. Uh, so the re- reunification of Italy, the Risorgimento, Risorgimento um, happened in 1871. Oh, so after, so after yeah. he was born, but it's a very recent thing. So. Mm. That's the historical context. Oh, but shit, I should I should mention as well. One of the reasons that Gramsci is so interesting and has been seen as so relevant to Wales is that you know he was a Sardinian, and at the time, you know, Sardinia is part of the Italian South, the Mezzogiorno. Check my pronunciation. Yeah, I was, was uh, going to say the Mezzogiorno is like the south of Italy, basically, um, and the south of Italy has historically been compared to Wales, and the fact it's always been very poor compared to the north of Italy, and people have done the same internal colony comparisons with like you know the south of Italy to the north of Italy and Wales to England and Gwyneth Williams actually wrote an amazing article which Daniel Williams uh, nice enough to send to me so shout out to Dan Williams and he basically says you know Gramsci's relevant to Wales because he's got this sort of Sardinian background 
And as we'll see, originally Gramsci was tended towards like Sardinian nationalism, but I digress. So he moves to Cagliari and he stays with his older brother Gennaro, which by the way, Gennaro boy is an amazing name. Yeah. If you want to name your kid. Do you know I, I, I don't want to name my kid at all. I'm not going to just raise my child gender neutral. I'm going to raise it like completely nameless as well. <laughs> but I think Gennaro, man. Like, Italians got like Giacomo is amazing. Gennaro. The thing is, they, they double his names. Cesare. Yeah, really good insults as well. Carmine. That's like the ultimate Italian American name. Yeah. Uh, so, and Gennaro is as well. So his, his brother Gennaro is like a former, is, is a, is a former soldier and he's a militant socialist. So, so even though he's lodging with his brother, who's his hardcore, like, you know, socialist, Gramsci was originally into, like, Sardinian nationalism, sort of, you know, blaming the north of Italy for the woes of Sardinia. You know, Sardinia was incredibly poor. Gramsci's got almost a peasant background. And so that's what one, and one of the reasons we'll see why Gramsci is so unique and such a sensitive, like, incredible thinker that you can apply to pretty much everything. Like, Bob Jessup's written an article, like, Gramsci is a spatial theorist. And he said, Gramsci's, like, uniquely aware of, like, uneven regional development. Like in Italy, he's always thinking about like the South, why things are and even like you don't see this level of sophistication in any other Marxist. I mean, even today, I don't think. Um, so yeah, he's always thinks about the South, where he comes from, which is quite unusual. So in 1911, he wins a scholarship to study at the University of Turin, which at the time was undergoing like rapid industrialization and was actually full of migrants from the South of Italy. And I said this at the Playa di Funk thing, but if you're a football fan, that's one of the reasons why Juve is so popular throughout the whole of Italy is because so many people from the south moved up to Turin and so sort of like Juve became like a family team so if you go to the south of Italy you'll see Juventus shirts because you know the family connections that southerners have with Turin so in Turin obviously you've got formation of industrial trade unions you know socialist real socialist militancy Gramsci joins the Italian Socialist Party but you know his he has real financial problems terrible physical health and you know combined with the fact he's becoming a socialist militant he drops out of university. But by the time he drops out, he's already an amazing scholar. I don't need you guys. <laughs> yeah, but like, you know... Keeping me behind. He, yeah, essentially, like, you know, he devours, like, classical political theory and philosophy, linguistics. And he then becomes a journalist. He writes in underground papers and journals and edits the official paper of the Socialist Party of uh, Italy. Then the leaders of the Socialist Party of Italy get arrested. He becomes, like, by default, one of the leading socialists in Turin. He's elected to the Committee of the Socialist Party... And so, as I said before, this is important because he's not just a theoretician. This is someone who's active in underground revolutionary circles, you know, giving talks, writing propaganda. In 1919, the Italian Socialist Party joined the Third International, which, as we saw in our episode with Doug Jones, the Third International is like the global club for the communist movements. You, like, affiliate to it. It's like, you know, it's like a jump in. Yeah. Um, so Gramsci got made. <laughs> yeah, basically. And within the Socialist Party at the time... You know, Gramsci is actually noted for, like, favouring workers' councils. So there's been a few articles, actually, about Gramsci's sort of sympathies, you know, maybe with, like, anarchist ideas. Yeah, it sounds like um, Because obviously, yeah. you know, at the time, you know, Italy is a hotbed of anarchism as well. A lot of uh, leading anarchists come from Italy. So he gradually becomes, like, dissatisfied with the sort of reformist, like, moderate path of the Italian Socialist Party. And so in 1921, Gramsci and other people in Livorno... Uh, they form the Communist Party of Italy, or the PCI. And Gramsci is one of the leaders. In 1922, he travels to Russia to meet with Lenin, all the other top boys. Yes, he did. Um, have a big meeting. Got a stag. Yeah. And he actually, he meets his wife. His again. future wife. Or no, like... he meets a wife out there. Which Oh, know, no, I thought you meant, it's like, oh, hey, didn't know you were, you know, you're my wife. And 
I said, you know, he's not bad. You know, he's five foot. He's got a hunchback. But he meets this stunning supermodel. <laughs> no, she's got. Uh, I think his wife probably was buzzing as well. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, no, she was like a musician. I think she's like impressive. So just goes to show she had a beautiful soul. Intellectual, you know, being an intellectual is the most is attractive. Yeah, is the most um, attractive thing anyone can have. And probably also hanging out with like Lenin. Yeah, and Stalin is probably pretty. Imagine them uh, as wingman. Is a bit of an in. Like, yeah, Stalin's like. Puts a gun in the girl's back, like you can <laughs> get with the uh, Gramsci, or yeah. <laughs> um, or I'll murder your family. Yeah, <laughs> the choice is yours. So whilst he's in Russia, uh, fascism actually sort of you know Mussolini comes to power in Italy, and Gramsci is sent back to Italy, you know, to try to unite the Italian left against fascism, something which sort of never materializes because like the Social Democrats, as you usual, yeah. are just awful, same as the Liberals. He becomes like default leader of the Italian Communist Party in 1924 again because like. Leaders keep getting arrested. Um, an interesting like vignette in 1926, he writes a letter to Moscow, and this is like debated. He apparently writes a letter to Moscow denouncing Stalin and saying, you know, like, hey, I want to keep a lid on this lad. Cool it down. Um, but you, this got, is, you got my, my wife. But but, it, but this is never actually delivered. It's intercepted in in Russia by his mate Togliatti, who's the other like big dog in the Italian Communist Party, and the relation never recovers. T dog. So that letter sort of surfaces afterwards because people were all saying like, you know, Gramsci's, how do you know like Gramsci's a letter Stalinist. got intercepted? Well, I don't know, but it didn't. That's the story. Anyway. I guess Russian intelligence. Pretty um, good. Okay, so then in November nineteen twenty six, the fascist government of Italy enacted a new wave of emergency laws because basically someone tried to assassinate Mussolini a few uh, days earlier. It was earlier. an anarchist, wasn't it? Tried to take him out. I think so. Yeah, and the police arrest Gramsci, you know, despite his immunity, because at the time he's a parliamentarian. You know, he's um he's a member of parliament for the Communist Party. The prosecutor, the fascist judge, says, for 20 years, we must stop this brain from functioning. Um, so he's sentenced to 25 years in jail. Uh, he spends 11 years in jail, much of it in solitary, during which time... This works out loads. <laughs> his health... He did it wrong. His health deteriorates rapidly. Uh, you know, as this happens to so many people who actually get jailed. I mean, John McLean... Is it John or James? Like the Scottish... Um, revolutionary um, John McLean is diehard. All oh, right, but the McLean, like the Scottish famous socialist, you know, he was force fed and Wynwood scrubs. You know, even though he got released, he, his health never recovered from the sort of abuse he endured in prison. Same for a lot of the Irish hunger strikers. You know, they come out of jail and yes, they're free, but they never actually re- really recover. So there's an international campaign for his release. You know, because obviously he's a politician as well as a theorist. You know, people like Italian community in the UK are sort of campaigning for his release and things like that. He gets released from prison. And he's put into a series of clinics, but he never recovers, and he dies in 1937, age 46. He, oh. never, he never gets to meet his second son. Who was a disappointment by all accounts. <laughs> just lucky he didn't meet him. He um, was, wasn't he? But I mean, I mean, I get really upset just reading about that. I mean, because when people dismiss Gramsci and dismiss like th- social theorists, you know, um, and when moderate reformers, you know, talk about Gramsci as like, you know, they're using his work to sort of support the Labour Party and, and these social democratic parties. I mean, Turning I mean, those are the me. parties that enabled the rise of fascism that eventually killed Gramsci, you know. Um, that's one of the other reasons he's so important, because he, as we'll see, he focuses on the liberal democratic state. He focuses on what he calls the state in the West. And he also witnesses firsthand, obviously, the rise of fascism. So he talks about fascism, and he's still, I would say, the, the foremost theorist of, of fascism. He's just he's just such an important thinker. But here we get to one of the reasons he's so misunderstood. Because in prison, he writes notes. 
Um, he writes this prison notebooks and carceral masterpiece. And His mixtape, but no. <laughs> the original mixtape. But in prison, he writes more than 30 notebooks, 3,000 pages of history and analysis, and no distractions. No. Easy to be productive. Well, he's nothing else to do other than uh, cutting work out, can he? And, you know, the, the notebooks are, are smuggled out of prison in bits. You know, they're not translated to English until the 70s, which, by the way, Gwyneth Williams, Wales' greatest ever thinker and Marxist, Wrote about Gramsci, translated him from the original Italian. Just a beast, Gwyneth Williams. You know, he's just so ahead of the game in every every respect. When the um, notes smuggled out as well, they were they were coded. To... Yeah, yeah. So like, so this is the thing, right? So um, the prison notebooks are like written in fragments. Like it's not a coherent narrative because you know he's writing on paper and pencils and fits and spurts. And as you said, everything has to get past the prison censor. So he uses pseudonyms like to refer to the major leaders. Like he calls Trotsky like. <laughs> Leo Davidovich and Stalin, like Vissarionovich. And, and so basically it's written in segments, you know, like short essays or even sometimes sentences on like multiple topics. So, you know... Or like a 4-4 four, four verse. <laughs> so he'll write, you know, like a sentence on hegemony and that'll be it. Mm. And then three or four pages later, there'll be five pages, you know, on this one concept or something like that. So... You have to use the index, and because there's no narrative really in it, and it was all sort of stuck together afterwards, people can actually pluck like a sentence out of thin air and like out of context, because you know. I guess it wasn't put in context to begin with. Sometimes he'd say one thing, and that would be like his thought for the day, and then sometimes he'd write, you know, a, a big passage of text on the concept. But that's why you have to read essentially the whole prison notebooks because that's how you get a sense of the context by reading it all and reading what he actually believes on the topic rather than reading like a one-off thing on it. Okay, so on to the key concepts, and we'll go through these in sequence, because I do think they're all interrelated. <laughs> in my book, there's a phrase by Peter Thomas when he says that all these concepts are united in a dialectical chain, which is like, when I found that quote, I was like, man, everyone's going to think I'm wicked smart yeah. if I put that in. But basically, they all are all linked together, and Gramsci's reading of hegemony comes from his reading of the state, and so on and so forth. But hegemony is, or hegemony, Hegemony. Potato, potato, yeah. hegemony, hegemony. Hegemony. Um, is probably, the, you know, that's the concept that is most closely associated with Gramsci for sure. It's mm. um, I've got a nice little quote here. It's seen as the unifying thread of the prison notebooks. The prison notebooks, as we've already said, have been quite like jumbled up and there's not that much of a coherent narrative because you could only write one page one day and then two pages or whatever. The hegemony is the thing that shines through really. Obviously, in the modern day, hegemony has loads of different applications, and we're going to put some links up. There's a guy called William Robinson that looks at all the different types of hegemony from looking at United States hegemony and the international There was arena. a really good interpretation of um, hegemony by John Carpenter and They Live. <laughs> so when he puts down his sunglasses, that reveal the truth. That but, film's a good thing if for all lecturers, I think, to use this as a uh, pull back behind the veil sort of thing. Yeah, Rowdy Roddy Piper <laughs> stole a pair of those sunglasses from set and I was disappointed when they didn't work outdoors. <laughs> Did he actually? Yeah, yeah, that's true, yeah. Oh my God. Um, he was in his, his always sunny as well, wasn't he? Oh yeah, that's the, he's the wrestler, isn't he? Mm. The maniac. Yeah. <laughs> All right, yeah, so there's loads of different applications of hegemony, both on the international level and the national level. You, know, you hear people say when something's hegemonic and so on. It might be worth looking at the sort of the origins of the concept briefly. Um, I mean, this is quite important because obviously Gramsci was a Leninist. Gramsci, as I've said, was the leader of the Communist Party of Italy. And hegemony as a concept is actually originally used in Russia. The Russian accent. Dobryotro. Uh, Gegemonia. So it appears in Lenin. And it basically, Lenin uses the concept of gegemonia, 
Gigamonia. Oh, you just <laughs> changed it slightly and right, passed um, it off as his own. So Lenin used the concept as a way of basically de- describing the proletariat's leading role in society. He uses it as a way of describing how the proletariat will bring other allied classes with them, like sort of the rural peasantry and and how they would sort of carry out this like leadership role during the sort of Russian Revolution. And then Gramsci develops this. And hegemony remains so relevant because of the historical context within which it was developed. So if you think about Lenin and Marx, as I said, you know, they were they were writing all classical Marxism essentially is well particularly Lenin was written to describe a political system and the material conditions in Russia, essentially, in an underdeveloped country. And Marx obviously wasn't writing at a time of advanced liberal democracies. Whereas Gramsci is so important, and I think he remains so important today because he he was analysing the advanced liberal democratic states of Western Europe. And so he develops this concept of hegemony to describe and examine how capitalism sort of kept going in the West and why there wasn't a proletarian revolution like there was in Russia. You know, so these people are basically, you know, the proletariat, the working class are basically being shot on Mm. in Europe in the same way as they are in Russia, essentially. But in unlike in Russia, you know, they're not rising up. And, and that's why he's so important. The kind of rule through consent type thing, is it? Absolutely. And what you just said is exactly exactly what hegemony is, essentially. At its simplest, hegemony refers to like a stable political situation, which is characterized by a lack of coercion by the dominant group. Whereas in Russia, the state is ruling through sort of brute force, for a better term. In the West, in Italy, in the UK, in France and, and the US... The ruling class are ruling through consent. As I said, the hegemony is the absence of coercion. Yeah, so hegemony is basically a quality of rule. It's about how the the ruling class keeps everyone on side. Probably worth using a direct quote. This is one of the most famous quotes that Gramsci wrote about hegemony. He says, hegemony is the spontaneous consent given by the great masses of the population to the general direction imposed on social life by the dominant fundamental group. This consent is historically caused by the prestige which the dominant group enjoys because of its position and function in the world of production. So the workers essentially consent to their situation. This is like the starting point. It's probably worth adding a couple of caveats in. So when you say consent, you don't necessarily mean that they actively love Mm. the situation. Or not aware of it in a sense. Yeah, it's kind of, I forget who wrote it, I think it's probably Peter Thomas. But he sort of picks out what Gramsci says. And like consent can actually mean a lack of, overt political mobilization so people could actually hate the system but sort of be sort of sullen and passive you know it doesn't necessarily mean that they actively love it it just means a lack of coercion on the on behalf of the state and the other caveat is that (laughs) Gramsci uses this metaphor of the centaur so he says basically that actually Gramsci himself was (laughs) centaur-like wasn't he in the sense that he was built like a horse from the waist down apparently yeah Uh, so that when we say consent, and like in the West, people rule through consent, it's always protected. What Gramsci says is that force and coercion is always, always there, even in like sort of advanced liberal democratic states. You know, the authority of the state always rests in the final instance on the police, you know, the army, the state, the court. And we'll talk about crisis in a sec. And I mean, a good example of that, I always think, is Northern Ireland within the UK. So, you know, if you look at like the UK is probably an example of a very complex and advanced uh, liberal state. The welfare state period in particular was pretty good at getting the proletariat 
subaltern classes, as Gramsci would put them, on side. But then if you look at the situation in Ireland, you can sort of see the true face of the state. So, you know, that's where the, the state, which is sort of uh, domestic on the, in the liberal context, is actually using its army and the police to sort of kill people in mm. Ireland. So it's always underpinned by coercion in the last instance. But it's kind of a spectrum, you know, what do you use in the West that Gramsci was analysing, like France, UK, America, more often than not, they're ruling through consent rather than coercion. But it is important to realise that coercion is always sort of there. And so then, so, Gram- so the Gramsci sort of identifies that situation of hegemony, and then the rest of his writing is basically dedicated to hegemonic strategies and working out, right, well, how, does, how do you produce consent? How do you produce this passive working class? How do you produce this stable society without where there's no communist revolution, essentially? And that's what the rest of his thinking is about. And it's really, really useful because the, the society, as I said, the societies that he analysed have essentially, for all intents and purposes, remained basically unchanged. Like the parliamentary democracies of, you know, Europe just don't change. They just, society keeps on reproducing itself. You know, capitalism keeps on going and going. So, as I briefly alluded to just now, hegemony has kind of become associated with, like, ideas or ideologies, you know, like a hegemonic ideology or dominant ideology and uh, ways of seeing the world which become dominant or commonsensical, taken for Mm. granted in any given society. And that's not wrong. That's not a wrong interpretation of hegemony. I mean, obviously, there is an ideological aspect, but this isn't the whole story. So the originality of the concept of hegemony, which I think is actually frequently overlooked, and this is the thing that I'm going to plug, where I plug my book, this is what I'm going to talk about when I finally... If you'd like to know more... (laughs) But yeah, Gramsci says like hegemony is developed in the factory, um, which is essentially a way of saying hegemony is actually related to the, the productive forces and the, the economy of a given society, which brings us back from thinking about just ideas. And so his analysis of hegemony, again, is rooted in his analysis of the liberal democratic state. So he's looking at the different ways that you know the West is structured compared to how the state is structured in Russia. And so what he, he does, he makes a distinction between the state in Russia, which he calls the state in the East, and you know the state in the liberal democratic countries of the US and the UK and Italy, which he calls the state in the West. So he says there's a fundamental distinction within the form of state. And this is really important because Gramsci's... I mean, there's a, there's a, I read a book before by a guy called Weatherall, I think, and it was on like sort of Marxist theories of the state when I was in uni. It was really good, but it didn't have anything on Gramsci. I should have written a strongly worded letter to him. Yeah, said, yes, sir. publish um, it in the newspaper. Uh, yeah, such an old game, but I... Yeah. <laughs> um, but, you know, it didn't have anything... I think it was that. It didn't have anything on Gramsci, and I think Gramsci's analysis of the state has been overlooked. When was it published, though? Because, I mean, it wasn't the whole... Gramsci and, um... uh, well the notebooks I mean the Quentin Hall's like compilation like uh, was came out in 1971 yeah so and this came out like relatively recently so no excuse for oh that. really but, um, no but nonetheless it's a good book but why is Gramsci's reading of the state important and how does it depart from sort of classic Marxist theories of the state obviously all our listeners are avid readers of Marx and will know mm. about the sort of the Marxist discussion of the state, but it is worth just briefly talking about that. So, I mean, if, if people haven't got their Marxist literature just ahead, hand, yeah. yeah. All right, so the Marxist theory of the state um, is probably the best two texts or mo- the most commonly referenced two texts on the sort of classic Marxist theory of the state, the Communist Manifesto, which is obviously a polemic and a call to arms, and 
the German ideology. Now, in the German ideology, I mean, I'm reading my handwritten notes here, so I have to apologise. Marx says that the state is nothing more than the form of organisation which the uh, bourgeoisie necessarily adapts for internal and external purposes for the guarantee of their property and interests. And obviously, in the Communist Manifesto, they say the executive of the modern state is but a committee for managing the common affairs of the whole bourgeoisie. And so what that means, obviously, is that the state system, or the state apparatus, is basically geared towards solely preserving and protecting and promoting the interests of the, the ruling classes. To and, reproduce itself, in a yeah, sense. And yeah, and then the state is essentially dominated by those classes to, to, as you said, to reproduce capitalism and to suppress the working class through the continuation of capitalism. Which, which is the argument why you'll never get any real change through parliamentary politics, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, which will be another episode, mm. um, which will focus on Ralph Miliband. Yeah. Um, as I said, we're, we're I'm slowly running out of the thinkers I can talk about with any authority. I think it's... Yeah, we're going to have to just go <laughs> to pop culture things soon. Yeah. And, there, and there is a big debate in Marxism about what they call like the autonomy of the state. So how flexible is the state and can the state ever act against the will of sort of the ruling classes? And that was obviously discussed later on by Ralph Miliband and uh, Nikos Palantzas. But in the... 18th Brumaire of Louis Bonaparte, which was a sort of a later, or I don't know if it's later, I, th- I assumed it was later text by Marx. Marx kind of suggested that the state might be a little bit more flexible mm. than he previously made out. Like maybe occasionally the state might be able to make some concessions to working class groups or movements in order to sort of maintain itself. So this is like, uh, like you said, like the argument for the welfare state. It wasn't, and like what we all said, it wasn't like the benevolence of the state. It was, in a sense, to get working class people on board. You just had like a, you know... It's a strategic a, concession. Yeah, yeah, a revolution. So yeah, absolutely. throw them some bones like... Yeah, that's, that's, that's literally exactly it. And so that is an ongoing debate, I guess, within Marxism. Like, And so Gramsci really develops this when he talks about the state in the West. And the, and the other thing we should think of the state is like, what actually is the state? Like, what comprises the state? And like Louis Althusser, you know, he did that thing, and it was like RSA, ISA. So RSA, repressive state apparatuses. So, you know, the courts, the police, the army. Post office. Prison system. <laughs> what did you say? Post office. Yeah, the post office. Um, and then obviously ideological state apparatuses would be, you know, like the media, education system, and so on and so forth. But it's about thinking like, you know, what when we think of like the man, the state, what do we think of? Most people probably think of like the police mm. and or parliament, or... Like the kind of face of the state. The face of the state, yeah. So Gramsci was really amazing that he completely expands what the state is. So the distinction he draws between the state in Russia and the state in Western Europe, he says, in the East, the state was everything. Civil society was primordial and gelatinous. In the West, there was a proper relation between state and civil society, and when the state trembled, a sturdy structure of civil society was at once revealed. The state was only an outer ditch, behind which there stood a powerful system of fortresses and earthworks. And there's another military metaphor, Gramsci's very big on that. So in essence, that means that in Western countries, the state is very sophisticated and that power is really complex. And so to use this military metaphor, he says, you know, the state was only an outer ditch. If you think of like the state in Russia as just like a fortress, you know, and, and indeed it actually was in like the Winter Palace, that was where the the royals sort of lived and, and that was where like, you know, I guess the, the check of the secret police and stuff are based. So almost like a feudal state where you yeah, have everyone living outside, like the, yeah, the ring fence. Yeah, basically. I think I think that's a worthwhile thinking about. You know, like there used to be a castle, and then the peasants would live like outside. Mm. Essentially, that's almost the way that the state was organized in Russia. And what he says basically in in the West is that the state isn't just this like big fortress. It's 
spread throughout society. You know, there's what he calls trenches, ways of maintaining the state's power that are away from. We'll talk about this a little bit later, but this is such an amazing way of understanding society. This is what Ralph Miliband and John Savile Palantzas talked about when they they talked about like the nature of the state in the UK, and it's something that like the British Labour Party have never got to grips with. Well, I think that Gramsci, in his reading of the state in the West, like foreshadows. Ralph Miliband always said about the British state, hey, the state isn't just parliament, because the Labour Party have always thought that if you could just control mm. parliament, then you can do whatever you want, you control power. But what John Savile and Ralph Miliband said was, well, no, because the state is... You know, it's a civil service, it's the police, it's Military, the army, yeah. it's, you know, it's the media, it's the education system. You've got to take over all these different, what grounds you'd call outer trenches, because that's where power actually lies. Power is diffuse, as in it's spread out, it's not just focused in one place. And so when he says we're expanding um, the state away from just thinking of, of being like parliament and the police, he says we're still on the terrain of the identification of state and government identification which is precisely a representation of the economic corporate form you don't have to know that um, in other words of the confusion between civil society and political society for it should be remarked that the general notion of the state includes elements which need to be referred back to the notion of civil society in the sense that one might say that the state equals political society and civil society in other words hegemony protected by the armor of coercion so essentially what Sir Gramsci is saying is the state is political society plus civil society what Gramsci's doing there he's saying that like power essentially permeates all aspects of society it's not just the places that we would traditionally think as being you know quote-unquote political like the government like political parties he's saying that actually power lies everywhere it's like you, you know you go to school and you have the same ideology reproduced yeah. to you as it, you yeah, like, else. So, yeah power and ideology extends into the private sphere you know the media education and this is really important because once you expand like where power lies in society, that has obvious ramifications for your political strategy. So, you know, if the state is just a simple like fortress or castle, like it was in Russia or, you know, in feudal times, and then outside is everyone else, like the peasants and the working class, then you can you can just smash the state. And Gramsci calls that like frontal attack, which is what the Bolsheviks did in Russia. He calls it a war of maneuver. It's like Bam, we're just going to take over, essentially. Ram down the castle doors. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah ram it down. And you can do that because the state isn't complex. You know, It's just like, it's there, let's take it over. But he says, well, when the state has what he calls, like, capillaries, which I think is quite interesting because, you know, in your lungs, the capillaries mm. are... So that means there's loads of branches of power everywhere. Gramsci says that when power is so diverse and spread throughout society and lies in loads of different places... It's probably not that appropriate to just smash through and like take over Westminster, let's say, yeah. because that's not the only seat of power. Power is everywhere. So he develops what he calls a war of position. You sometimes use the phrase <laughs> in the circles we swim in, obviously. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You sometimes hear the phrase, the long march through the institutions, which wasn't actually anything to do with Gramsci. I think that was just like a student leader in the 60s, but it basically is the strategy of like gradually colonizing you know, like what militant tenancy did essentially, like taking over local government and mm. taking over education. So to illustrate the complexity of this modern liberal state, you know, the state in the West, Gramsci has this concept which he calls the, so this I pronounce integral, but it might be integral. Oh, I thought it was integral. All right. So <laughs> integral state. I read a, an article about working class academics and Lisa McKenzie said the same thing. It's like when you... you read the words, you don't have to pronounce them. You've like, read and written them for years and years and years. And when you stand up at a conference, you never... You're like, oh, shit. Like, what's... How do you pronounce this? 
Yeah, yeah. I'm trying to think of some of the ones. Oh, I have to rethink Gram-sa- of saying... Gram-sa-like. No, I have to... gram kilo Grampy. I always have to really think of saying chasm. I, I instinctively go to say chasm. Yes. That's how it's spelled, isn't it? You scum like. Yeah, pretty much <laughs> it. Um, all right, so he develops this thing called the integral state. And he basically argues that the state... Bear in mind, class, we're thinking back to like the classic Marxist view of the state as being the managing committee of the bourgeoisie that only acts in the interest of the bourgeoisie. Gramsci actually said that the integral state in the West, the state is actually elastic. He says it um, is capable of being stretched to accommodate like all groups. That's actually a quote by Chris Hesketh. And hegemony or you know consensus is achieved when states actually become concretely concerned with all elements of society, you know, when they depart from acting solely in the narrow interest of the ruling class. And so Gramsci actually has a name for the classic Marxist view of the state, and he calls it the econo-corporate state, and that's the state which only acts in the interest of the ruling class. And he argues that states are only acting in the interest of the ruling class, like, for example, Russia, Mm. or the state in feudal times, or states in South America where the state is underdeveloped. He says they can never actually achieve hegemony they can never achieve real true consent because they don't act they only act in the interest of the bourgeoisie they're always going to leave there's always going to be massive class antagonisms because the proletariat are going to look at the state and say well obviously they're not looking out for us so the ideal form for achieving hegemony or you know ruling through consent is the integral state and the sophistication of like the state i mean in particular in the uk i would say is that it effectively presents itself as a keeper of like the national interest, you know, and not just acting in the interest of the bourgeoisie. So Peter Thomas says that the new integral state was no longer merely an instrument of coercion, imposing the interests of dominant classes from above. Now in its integral form, it had become a network of social relations for the production of consent, for the integration of the subaltern classes into the expansive project of historical development of the leading social group. And so essentially to, to become hegemonic, the ruling class, must become concerned with the material interests of all social groups rather than solely acting in its narrow corporate interest. It must make like concessions, essentially, to the working class or like the lower middle classes or the, the rural peasantry in order to keep it on side. So it's, that's as simple as that. So Gramsci says that the state is seen as the organ of one particular group, You're destined to create favourable conditions for the latter's maximum expansion, i.e. the bourgeoisie. But the development and expansion of the particular group are conceived of and presented as being the motor force of a universal expansion, of a development of all the national energies. In other words, and this is the important part, the dominant group is coordinated concretely with the general interest of the subordinate groups. All right, so that's the nature of the integral state, is that it's the transformation of the state's apparatuses in a way that sort of protects the national interest, which means everyone comes on board, basically. And this is really important. Hegemony has two parts. The first is ideological and the second is material. And when we say material, we mean like material concessions to subaltern classes, like the, the proletariat, essentially. And this essentially... Well, so you mean like, in what sense, material? Like, do you mean physical things? Yeah, like actual material concessions, as in, so for example, the British welfare state is probably a fantastic example of an integral state where... Yeah obviously ultimately is still running the interest of capitalism and the reproduction of capitalism, but it's given concrete concessions to the working class in the form of literally things like free houses, mm. um, oh, okay, nationalised yeah. subsidised transport, and so on and so forth. But what's really interesting, I mean, before I f- forget, 
because I, I, sorry, um, I kind sure. of not get confused, but like you know, obviously there's hegemony in both state and there's cultural hegemony, which would be like, uh, I guess you know, having as far as I'm concerned, having like an ideology reproduced through things you buy or consume. Yeah. Oh, okay, there we are then. Yeah. So, so, so yes, yeah, so there's there's different aspects, and um, this all comes together in like the concept of the historical block, which we'll talk about just briefly. The important thing here is you can't understand hegemony unless you understand Gramsci's expanded reading of the state basically and this concept of the integral state that's where like hegemony is rooted in the state form so it's not just like ideas so for example you could have what you call like cultural hegemony you could have a dominant ideology in a in a society but unless people's lives are being made better i very much doubt that it's possible to achieve properly achieve hegemony yeah because there's obviously going to be a disjunction between what people experience so in a sense like capitalism works here's a cheap tv uh for some reason sorry you can't afford healthcare. yeah yeah i mean i, I guess so i mean but as i said i mean that, that's the strength of gramps he looks at society holistically so it's not just one or the other you have to look at everything mm-hmm. and that's why he looked at ideas he looked at education system he looked at um religion and in particular he looked at like nationalism the national popular will and how that sort of got people on side so that's the important thing basically the state has to be flexible it has to be prepared to like ameliorate the sort of social problems faced by subalpine classes. Christine Bucky Glucksman, she says that, you know, the rejection of the instrumental conception of the state is the fruit of Gramsci's entire political practice. So that's, like, if you can take one thing away from this, it's like Gramsci's reading of the state, and it's the reading of the state from which our understanding of like, hegemony comes from. All right, so that's briefly what I say, the material aspect of it. That's what Gramsci means when he says hegemony is rooted in the factories or built in the factories or developed in the factories, one of those things. Just briefly turn out to like the ideological facet of hegemony, which is what most people think of when they think of hegemony, they think of ideas. A situation of hegemony, like it moves beyond like this class alliance. So if you're thinking about what we just described about the material concessions given to like working classes and the integral state, you can't have a hegemonic situation where it's just like a class alliance between like, for example, the peasantry and the proletariat. Because if you had that, then you'd still ultimately have like competing material interests, like groups would be competing against each other, and they'd still have their own like distinct ideologies. So Gramsci says that you have to create like a higher synthesis, or what he says like something that leads to the creation of a a collective will or conception of the world which transcends class interests. And so the task of anyone who wants to be hegemonic or dominant is to forge unity across classes and that's like goes back to the original thing that lenin wrote about you know about the leading role of the proletariat and the revolution but this gives it like this ideological aspect like you know so how do you create an ideology which submerges like the obvious different needs and lifestyles and of like the proletariat you know the peasantry and like the petty bourgeoisie and so gramsci says that the forging of these ideological links marks the most purely political phase of hegemony and marks the decisive passage from the structure, i.e. the economy, to the sphere of the complex superstructures. So it's how we develop these this like unity between people, between different classes who have different interests, is where the idea of Gramsci being this like theorist of the superstructures come from, because he does spend a lot of time looking at how religion and things like that is used to bring sort of competing classes together. And clearly, like for Gramsci, this process involves complex superstructures of the media civil society education and so on to create and disseminate these ideas and what's really important he pays like a huge amount of attention to what he calls society's intellectuals who he calls like functionaries 
of hegemony. So in the modern day, that would be, you know... Your own Jones. Yeah, your own Joneses, your Andrew Neils, but even people like, you know, Farage, Tommy Robinson for the, you know, for the right, people who popularize ideas. We could do a separate episode even on the role of the intellectuals in society, but Gramsci was like the first theorist to really focus on the different people in society specifically and what role they have. So this would also be academics. And actually Stuart Hall has this really good piece on intellectuals where he sort of makes a distinction between the different floors of intellectual development. So he says there's like the top floor where ideas are sort of like refined and disseminated. And I would probably say that's like academia a lot of the time or politicians. And then he says they sort of pass through the floors and get disseminated. So then like the media would pick up on an idea and help popularize it. And then it ends up in like the education system and so on and so forth. And then Bob Jessup wrote about knowledge brands, which is kind of like a case study of how an idea becomes hegemonic. So a bit um, like austerity in a sense, you know. Guess, yeah, guess. from the Chicago school. And yeah, and then gets implemented and, and developed until it becomes commonsensical. Yeah, yeah, to the, yeah, and it becomes normal that people's lives are absolutely ruined. Yeah, and it's and you get people from you know on Twitter with blue ticks saying this mm. is as good as it gets. So yeah, the intellectuals create these ideas and so on. The Gramsci causes the third moment when a certain ideology, or it can also be like a, a combination of ideologies, prevails and propagates itself throughout society. In his words, and he says it brings about not only a unison of economic and political aims also intellectual and moral unity between classes and he calls it a consensual totality which like brings together people with completely competing like class interests and sort of molds them together really and so in my opinion people who read Gramsci call this like the hegemonic principle so like what is the ideology that is capable of gaining popular acceptance by all classes and overcoming the inherent material tensions like between classes and so Gramsci identifies nationalism he says nationalism is the popular religion or he calls it the national popular will he never actually says like nationalism he says the particular form in which the hegemonic ethic political element presents itself in the life of the state and the country is patriotism and nationalism oh, he does say it. <laughs> which is popular religion that is to say it is the link by means of which the unity of leaders and led is affected so he says that nationalism is the supreme mechanism of class accommodation so it's an ideology, as we all know, anyone talk about nationalism. Nationalism says basically that everyone's class interests are the same and that, you know, or that are irrelevant and that the nation is most important. That people in the same country, like I say Wales, they would argue that like a, a manager or a boss in Wales has more in common with a working class person in Wales than the working class person in Wales has in Like England, a working class England. people of England, yeah. You know, which is obviously complete bollocks. But nationalism, patriotism, chauvinism is... Like he identifies it as being the supreme ideology of bringing people together. But it's worth now also talking about when we talk about ideology, like Gramsci, he obviously, he identifies like the capillary forms of society, like the education system. He writes about the media, he talks about the intellectual. He says every man is an intellectual, but only some men have the function of intellectuals. So every man can be sort of active and can affect society. But he says only certain people have that function of like distributing ideas within society and the interesting thing is he, he does develop the theory of intellectuals away from like just like professors and journalists he says it could be teachers is people working in like a job center it's when you say the intellectual function it's about how the ideas are disseminated and who spreads ideas it could be you know bloggers hmm. you know people people who you might not think of as being particularly influential but they are actually pewdiepie for example <laughs> yeah and the other interesting thing and raymond williams develops this so Gramsci says that when something is hegemonic, 
Gramsci talks about common sense and like when something becomes commonsensical. And that's from this Italian phrase, which is like uh, senso commune, which means something that is so deeply taken for granted in society that it becomes something that you can't see or feel because it's just an absolute truth. It's so deeply embedded and absolutely everywhere that you take for granted. So that's what Gramsci says when something like an ideology, like nationalism, for example, becomes commonsensical. We've spoken of that briefly when we've talked about banal nationalism, like Michael Billig. And so Billig says, I don't think he engages with Gramsci, but he says that about if you go into a church, for example, if you go to a church in Wales, you will see, you won't notice it, probably, because it's so taken for granted. But if you look in there, you'll see a list of all the people who died in the Great War. You'll see things to king and country, and you will see a union flag pretty much in every church in Wales. So that's an example of how nationalism will penetrate even to the most... Kind of obscure. Like, yeah, yeah, and it's just like, absolutely yeah. everywhere. Shout out to that guy who tried to bring religion to that island uh, off India and then got shot the death with arrows. Oh, yeah. What are you thinking? <laughs> um, but, yeah, so, um, so Gramsci says that ideology and hegemony is like a totality. So this is important. When you say something is hegemonic, it's not just like ideas. It's not something you can, like, see. And Mark Fisher in Capitalist Realism is basically what he says when he says there's no alternative when he talks about neoliberalism. Because Fisher talks about how stuff becomes so completely taken for granted that any alternative to capitalism and neoliberalism is literally unthinkable. And that's because it, it's become commonsensical. So, like Gramsci, you have The Apprentice, don't you? I mean, that's essentially a neoliberal yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, and game it, show. But um, like... And that's a value that you probably might not even think about when you're watching The Apprentice. But yeah, so Gramsci and Mark Fisher actually go together like, uh, what is it in the Big Daddy? It's like uh, bolognese and tuna fish. <laughs> no, but it goes, they go together really, really well. And Raymond Williams says about this, he says hegemony is a totality and it's something that is, it's material in the sense that like ideology is literally contained in things like architecture, it's contained in stuff like street names, it's contained in things like uh, cenotaphs, it's it's absolutely everywhere. It like permeates all walks of society to the extent that you, you don't even know it's there. Unless you have a special set of sunglasses. <laughs> yeah, like but... absolutely. And Gramsci is so amazing because he talks about the individual he says the individual is like bizarrely composite. We're composed of all these different contradictory ideologies. But there's a passage when he talks about the individual and we have dual consciousness. And the dual consciousness is really important because it demonstrates how taken for granted certain ideologies are. And I always used it to describe like the British Labour Party. So the Labour Party, you can have very progressive ideas. You can have certain um, views on the redistribution of wealth in society. But underlying that will always be a commonsensical British nationalism and the view that the British state should be untouched and you know Britain is great that an empire is fantastic you know they don't, they don't explicitly think that but but that's what Lenin says when he talks about the British labor movement so and what happened is they've internalized this sort of regressive idea about Britain and Britishness and then because that's so taken for granted within them that's like something you're almost almost born with because society is so deeply ideological and militarism for example that's so that stuff is like implanted in your brain almost as soon as you're born because it's in school, it's in your parents will speak, tell yeah, you so, about you know, it, you... it's in the media. And then that like becomes, a poppy day, isn't it? And I mean... that becomes completely taken for granted within the individual. And then on top of that, you can build things like, all right, I'm a socialist. And there are certain things that will never be examined precisely because they are so deeply rooted in the person and because they are so widespread and they, because they saturate society to such a huge degree. So the, when Gramsci says commonsensical, when something's hegemonic, it's impossible to conceive of something not being there. You can't even reflect on it. 
because you're so taken for granted. Like in Mark Fisher and Capitalist Realism, and like Zizek says this as well, it's when people say, you know, I'm not ideological. They say like, oh, you would say that because this journalist is ideological because mm. they can't yeah. they can't see their perspective is ideological because it's it's almost like... It's ingrained, it, isn't it? It's so deeply ingrained in them. And yeah, and he, he draws attention to what he calls the capillary forms of society that disseminate these ideas and, and make them commonsensical. So we've talked about hegemony, we've talked about how hegemony is rooted in the state, and we've talked about how when Gramsci talks about ideology and how something's hegemonic, it doesn't just mean ideas in the stuff we can necessarily identify. When something's hegemonic and commonsensical, it's something that is, you know, it's the next it's next level mm. ingrained in society. Absolute. Yeah, absolute. Something you can't even conceive of. You can't see. You know, if someone says you can't see the forest for the trees, Yeah, it's like, it's that, essentially. That sums up. Yeah, that sums up the material. Ramsey's <laughs> work on hegemony as being this like totality. Okay, so all this is brought together. So, so that's the ideological dimension of hegemony, and we've said he identifies nationalism as being probably the most potent ideological sort of glue that binds everyone together. And he's got this concept called a historic block. And the historic block is like I think underused, but it's it's useful because it's how Gramsci brings all parts of society together. It's a way of looking at a society in a particular epoch within the world system and how like capitalism and, and how different societies tick over and how they develop because of the different things that are at place. And all these things sort of have to be in place for the society to function. The historic block is like the situation of like successful hegemony or like the hegemonic moment. It was just like a period where everything has like come together and like clicked into position perfectly to create what Gramsci calls a shared life or like a harmony between all the different groups of society where class and antagonisms have been like suppressed essentially and we're all one big happy family. This is a very new labour type <laughs> yeah, policy, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, but it, it, the historic block, I mean, I've got the quote, direct quotes here, is it's hegemony achieved within a particular national framework, you know, within historically and culturally specific national circumstances. So, for example, a successful hegemonic moment or hegemony like being achieved will differ in country to country based on period to period like yeah and and the cultural traditions of that country so for example contrast what a hegemony might look like in the middle east to the uk to south america and so on mm. and so to create like a historic block you know you need external like international forces so you you obviously going to need a, a stable global economy with no international crises for example you'll need an integral state form you know a state that's capable of making concessions to subaltern groups and you'll need it all to be underpinned by this successful hegemonic ideology. So this could be nationalism in like the Middle East. I'm thinking in particular it could be religion, it could be Islam. Um, and previously in the Middle East, where they were, it was Arab nationalism, but it can vary from sort of country to country, essentially. And so there are other examples of what I would call successful historic blocks. So populist movements in countries like Argentina, like Peron, you know, people that achieved very nationalistic ideologies, but also like Peron sort of brings together all groups of society in Argentina, you know, like gives loads of concessions like the trade unions and working classes and they love him even though he is essentially like a despot. But the British state in particular, the welfare state, I think is probably the best example of a historic bloc. You know, you've got a global, stable international political economy after World War Two, which is largely underpinned by American money, if you read like Leo Panich and oh, who's the guy he writes with? Um, Sam Gindin. Yeah, and Gindin. So, you know, the, the welfare state is like a full example of what a historic block is. So you've got this stable international situation. You've got 
the integral British state where the Labour Party sort of get in and they make material concessions to the working class, essentially, you know, council housing, uh, nationalisation of like coal, steel, which improves people's lives. And also you've got massively rejuvenated British nationalism following World War Two, which brings together this like essentially what the welfare state was is a class alliance between the workers and the, and the state yeah. uh, and the bourgeoisie essentially. Temporary class alliance, uh, a lot like the 2012 Olympic uh, ceremony. Yeah, but it, you know, brought everyone together. British nationalism that sort of yeah. yes, like, suppresses the uh, the class antagonisms, and and that's what the welfare state was. It was a temporary accommodation between forces of capital and forces of labour, essentially. Yeah, and it's you know the British Labour Party view that as like the the high point of socialism, which is like, surreal. Um, <laughs> and Gramsci also says, and this is what I should probably throw in because it pisses me off when people in the Labour Party. Try to appropriate Gramsci. He also says that um, you also need like political parties to play a role in like binding people to the state because you know without political parties, often you you've got the people on the one hand and the state on the other hand. But what parties do is bring people into the state and they give a face to the state as well. You know, it's people like canvassing and stuff. And he actually talks about social democratic parties, what he calls people parties, and he says we've got to question whether the the function of the people's party is reactionary or progressive. And he says, does the party carry out its policing function in order to conserve an outward extrinsic order, which is a fetter on the vital forces of history? Or does it carry out in the sense of tending to raise the people to a new level of civilization? In other words, does the People's Party support the bloc, the state, or does it develop counter-hegemonic forces with a view to creating a new society? Like, So is it working to overthrow capitalism essentially and obviously it never will in the the british context in particular the british labor party plays a policing function Mm. and that's sort of developed by like leah panage tom nairn rock Miliband, john savile in their analysis of the labor party in like the 60s but but gramsci kind of like i think is the person that starts this when he talks about the the policing role of the, the social democratic parties oh yeah and the other thing briefly we should say is that um when we're talking about hegemony is that hegemony is contested so hegemony like within the society the hegemonic forces in society, like the state, is continually battling to like maintain it. It's you know it's like a well, I'm trying to think what that metaphor is when there's you know it looks like something's calm but under the surface sometimes pedaling along at a million miles an hour. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> like well, anyway, it's like a, a hamster wheel. Anyway, you know, people, but, yeah, the hamster's calm, but the wheel is that's that's a new metaphor no, for uh, the ages. But anyway, you know, I can't think of what it what it is. I'm Rest sure in there, peace to my I'm, hamster. I'm, I'm sure there is one where you know people are. The, the exterior looks calm, but underneath, actually, you know, people are sort of working the bottom. Well, I can, I, yeah, I can't think of it now. I just keep up, like, calm before the storm or storm in a teacup, which is no. not those, is it? Well, if you think of it, you can put it back in. Yeah. What the metaphor is. Anyone who's good at English, please get in touch and tell us what this metaphor would yeah, be. Yeah, and tell uh, us what a metaphor is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so, like, yeah, so hegemony is contested. So Gramsci talks about, like, counter hegemony. I mean, this is the thing. He's a Leninist, right? And he's talking about. We're flying through concepts at a huge rate here. But Gramsci talks about the Communist Party. He Obviously, he writes in code in the prison notebooks. And he refers to the Communist Party as the modern prince, which is something he takes about Machiavelli. But he talks about the Communist Party or the modern prince. So when you read the modern prince in Gramsci, he's talking about the Communist Party. He's not talking about like a, an actual prince. He's not he's talking, talking about Charles or, <laughs> no. or William. No, he's talking about the Communist Party and the leading role it plays in society. And what he talks about is how subaltern groups like the proletariat, you know, the Communist Party, how you can become hegemonic and what he says you have to develop effectively a counter-hegemony. So you develop counter-hegemonic apparatuses 
that lie alongside and contest the hegemonic forces of the state. So I'm thinking about the media. That's like an obvious way of explaining it. So, you know, you've got hegemonic, you know, the media that supports the state at the moment. So like, you know, Daily Mail, uh, Trinity Mirror, Western Mail in Wales. And you've got like counter-hegemonic media, I would say. So things like Navarra, uh, Real Politic, <laughs> yeah. us. But, you know, like these um, radical organs which try to sort of change society's consciousness. Paul Rock obviously says you, you can become hegemonic like before taking power. Yeah. Before you smash the state, you can become hegemonic. I mean, and even Corbynism was kind of like a counter-hegemonic cultural movement because especially Grime for Corbyn, that became a very brief... It didn't do enough. Mm. It didn't do enough and, and Corbynism's got a long way to go. But that's trying to develop a, a counter-hegemonic way of viewing society that breaks out of neoliberalism as the dominant social order. Okay, the other thing that's relevant for this is that it might sound quite depressing because how does society change? Like, how on earth does society change if there is no alternative, if, you know, ideology is so taken for granted that we can't, we don't even see it and think about it? One of the reasons that society, or one of the times that society can change, is what Gramsci talks about crisis a lot. He talks about the crises that um, grip the state. And this is kind of different from, like, within sort of classical Marxism, especially like Kautsky and like historical materialism, there's like an assumption that, you know, eventually, if you, if you just sort of don't do anything, the contradictions of capitalism would, will essentially lead to proletarian revolution because capitalism will fail and fail and fail mm. and eventually will lead to sort of socialism. But obviously, capitalism does fail. It fails every 10 to 20 years as a massive crisis of overproduction and it just gets or whatever. Rebranded then, doesn't it? And then it gets reproduced. So Gramsci talks about crisis, and when he talks about crisis, he's not talking about necessarily the regular organic crisis that will always happen in capitalism, so like the housing mm. crashing or the crash. Boom, boom and bust type things. Yeah, the regular boom and bust. Obviously, he does mean those because capitalism is prone to crisis and there will always be a big crisis or a small crisis every five to ten years. He talks about crisis that things like wars. Climate change. Climate change, things yeah. like that. And what he says, these periods in society can completely shatter the faith people have in the state. Like, you know, if you think about like the Arab Spring, for mm. example, you know, countries were relatively stable in the Middle East prior to that. But, you know, small crises um, can be set off by little things. And what he says then, he uses the military metaphor. You know, during times of crisis, he says basically it's like the walls of the state get smashed. You know, it's like smashing a cannonball, essentially, or using a trebuchet. Yeah. (laughs) Um, You know, but like... (laughs) If you're a hipster. (laughs) But but, but smashing the walls of, like, the the state. Um, And that's a crisis. And he said, he almost uses it as the way of like it's like a like a disease almost like you know so the, the virus can uh, of the crisis can like smash the state and like affect all the different branches of it so all the capillaries the different trenches that sustain the power of the state can be like infected by this crisis and so for example like Brexit is mm. is obviously a crisis of the of the state in the UK it's a split in the ruling class but it doesn't necessarily this is a depressing bit the crisis doesn't necessarily. Mm lead to like a socialist revolution or a complete change in society. And in fact, Gramsci develops this concept called passive revolution. And passive revolution is an extremely, well, it's an amazing concept. This is uh, one we covered before, isn't it, in our devolution episode? Yeah, yeah, essentially. So obviously, as ever, like, check that out. But passive revolution refers to periods of change. I mean, there's loads of different ways of interpreting passive revolution. But the main thing is about whether or not society changes during periods of crisis or whether, so whether society changes in, in a real sort of structural root and branch reform of society or whether it's kind of like um, society perpetuates capitalism sort of heals itself essentially. And what Gramsci says is that, you know, there is a crisis and it's a shock and it kind of like 
it like rocks. You know, you see a boxer get like rocked. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, his legs go straight. That's what happens in a crisis to the ruling class. But he says because the ruling class are experts at this, he says, you know, they sort of shake it off and they'll just they'll write the ship. And this is what he means essentially. I mean, go back and listen to other other episode on this or, you know, read my paper, buy my mm. book, whatever. Or um, do or three. <laughs> uh, but passive buy a t-shirt too. But passive revolution is essentially um, a way of sustaining you know the state during periods of crisis it's when society might appear to change radically what it actually does is it's actually going on in the same way as it was before passive can mean a lot of things but passive essentially means that the the working classes are excluded from this period of transformation so there might be like in the arab spring you know there might be popular revolutions and you know, people out in the streets protesting like they did in yemen but mm. what might happen like they did in egypt is that the ruling class go all right well We'll get rid of the old leader, and we'll just put another puppet in, basically. Puppet in, yeah. basically, and that sort of stems people. You know, stems the tide. It sort of buys people off. People are like, oh, okay, society's changed. But in reality, you know, it's just going on. The like same an election, basically. basically. Every election, you know, you yeah. vote in a different party, but most yeah, of the time, it's the it's, same ideology. Yeah, it? I mean, there is an ex- more expansive reading of passive revolution, where where it refers to like a change in the mode of capitalism itself. So, for example, moving from like welfare capitalism or keynesianism to like thatcherism mm-hmm. or it can mean like a in a more narrow sense like a transition within a particular country and as i've argued in the previous podcast devolution is actually a classic example of passive revolution you know you had the thatcherism was essentially a crisis of the state because you know it was a crisis of britishness because britishness in wales used to be understood as, as fairness essentially as the welfare state the nhs and so on and all of a sudden britishness becomes associated with you know, Thatcherism and this horrible... Um, Police officers hitting minors. Like, yeah, you know, and I mean, people call Thatcher the midwife of, uh, of devolution because apparently she pissed everyone off enough that they decided <laughs> to, uh, you know, people wanted devolution now where they rejected it in 1979. But what I've argued is is that, well, I won't ruin it. Yeah. I won't ruin it for you. You have to go back and listen to the other one and listen to the other 50 episodes as well. Yeah, um, as much as possible. Okay, and... That's it. The, the other thing I would briefly say is that we will hopefully do an episode on fascism because I think that's really important as we are seeing a clear rise of fascism in our streets and yeah, in our society. All across Europe as um, well. And Gramsci was one of the foremost theorists of fascism because unlike like Lenin, who sort of died before fascism was a real thing, Gramsci lived during Italian fascism. And, um, and a lot of communist and socialist theorists, theories of fascism were pretty rubbish to be honest you know they sort of said like fascism is like the highest stage of capitalism and well like the last gasp like the last like death rattle of of capitalism and i'm not going to go into that too much but what i will say is that gramsci talks about the class dimension of fascism in italy and he also tragically he actually said that he predicted there was going to be a coup like so there was a coup i believe in 1922 Mussolini came to power, and in 1921, Gramsci says, like, hey, the Social Democrats need to wake up to the real possibility that the fascists and the black shirts are going to march on Rome and actually just, like, take over society. No, Social Democrats. And then, like, a year later, it literally happened, like, what he said, and then, obviously, he got imprisoned. Um, you know, died in a fascist prison cell. But what Gramsci says is that the fascists, well, he actually identifies two forms of fascism, you know, rural fascism and sort of urban fascism, and he also makes a difference between like the radical element of fascism in Italy, which was kind of like demobilized war veterans, and then like a more moderate aristocratic side. Your Richard Probably, Spencer's like... Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it's uh, this two fascisms is something that is really a useful way of looking at it. So, for example, if you look at UKIP 
and the far right in the UK, mm. you've got a clear split between like the EDL or Democratic Football Lads Alliance, sort of essentially a proletarian, you know, petty bourgeois like manifestation of it. And then you've got your Jacob Rees-Mogg, your mm. UKIPs, you know, your sort of respectable bourgeois fascism. And what they've got in common is a complete hatred of the proletarian uh, class and the hatred of socialism. And they sort of come together in that. And Gramsci says that the fascism is the white guard of capitalism. And that's what both, you know, the EDL and UKIP and so on have in common is that they they stand to preserve the system. But we'll do another episode on on fascism soon. And that's it. I mean, I think that's pre- I mean that's a good overview of Gramsci's key Life concepts. Times. If I do see my, so myself, I mean, we haven't touched on things like Caesarism, we haven't touched on Fordism, um, we haven't touched on his work on like education, religion. Um, his dance group <laughs> barely touched that. Um, but there's you know there's so much. I mean, if you pull one thread, obviously it, there's so much to to read. And to, feel free to get in touch, and we'll be sending out some links for further reading on Gramsci. Um, or oh, we can do a part two if if people demand it. Um, I mean, I might read it. I mean, a good person. I mean, a good article to read would be. I mean, there's a couple by Stuart Hall, like Gramsci and us, the Great Move and Right Show. Authors to read on Gramsci include Peter Thomas, Adam David Morton. And there's a really good article in uh, New Socialist recently by a guy called Chris Green, which I thought was really useful on like the uses and abuses of Gramsci, which we'll tweet out. And that's it. Okay, so shout-outs this week. It's a Portugal town. Made my glorious debut. Oh, you uh, did? Made my, my glorious comeback. Came off the bench, scored the winner for the two. So, nice. You know, you, you did know. have a lustrous uh, football career. Class is permanent, mate. You know, mm. uh, former temporary class is permanent. And I can't walk now, so yeah. <laughs> thanks for the warm welcome back. My shout-outs, Red Dead Redemption 2, which is the main reason why we haven't recorded in so long, is because I've been playing that hour and an hour. Also, if anyone's interested in watching you film, Sorry to Bother You is out. You can get it on uh, illegal means, but I, I do uh, advise people to watch it because it's absolutely brilliant. That's your recommendation this week? There's my film recommendation. I'm going to do that and start recommending films each week. In fact, I'm going to recommend the same film each week. Peace, guys. All Bye. right, cheers. Relaxed. Oh, you see. We got an Italian massage. That's a nice red sauce. You don't need a Chinese massage, you need an Italian massage. It's a mozzarella. Mm. Tastes pretty good. <laughs> this is a nice pepperoni. Oh. We like this pepperoni. What is a nice massage? Sorry, you're closing to it. How about a bang? How about a moon? Oh. It's going to make them poop. It's going to get everything out. It's going to be really nice and stinky, but it's going to be good. You don't worry about your work. You don't worry about your home. You don't worry about your wife. You have a nice massage. Please come to Salana Ala. They first time only make the massage. I am not a work here. I am a customer. It's a three for one, for one time only. I feel good on my back. Every massage you get on one of the pizza. One of the salad now is the best of pizzas, not just a nice cheese pizza. Okay.